Hello and welcome to episode 67 of the Tomato Timer. And today I'm joined by James Freider. James is an award-winning Caribbean medical student studying at Imperial College London. He's someone I keep running into, a fellow DIA award recipient and also work alongside each other at the EY Foundation's Youth Advisory Board. James is a co-founder of the Ladder Project CIC, which helps holistically develop students and prepare them for life after school. Thank you so much for joining me today, James. How are you? Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm feeling um, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling enthused. Um, mm. I'm really excited for this conversation. So thank you for having me. Man. Absolutely. I want to start with with a hard question, and uh, I want to spend as much time as it takes to to really you know start unpacking uh, the taboo points when it comes across this. But what are the inherent and structural barriers that students from underrepresented backgrounds face at top academic institutions in the world? Wow, uh, you've you've really started with the big questions early mm-hmm. in the morning, <laughs> um, but I'm I'm sure this is going to fire my brain up. Uh, so I I think there are a few, and I think in order to answer this question, you, you have to start really young. Um, and I, I can only really use the examples of like you take you the top institutions in the UK because those experiences that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I think it's, it starts young. Uh, first of all, depending on what, what kind of school you go, whether you go to a private or uh, a state school, already the, the kind of differences start because um, depending on how much time a student gets with a teacher, how much help they get, even things like our, our, our um, diagnoses kind of picked up or our, our problems picked up quite early. Mm-hmm. A lot of students, they, or a lot of adults I know today, they say that because the teacher didn't have time to spend with them to really understand how they work or who they are as kind of people, a lot of things like ADHD or dyslexia um, weren't picked up. I think for me, an example, uh, I had dyslexia all my life um, and I only found out when I went to university. Wow. Um, in my, in my fir- actually, after my first year exams, I realised I was dyslexic. And then that's when I started to get provisions that I really needed. So mm. I always think to myself, like, how much how much better would I have done throughout school Um had I had those provisions or had I had someone taken the time to really understand me and how, the way I work. So, so I think it's first one's kind of like um, even already differences in schools. But I think if you look at the facts outside of school as well, um, I think uh, particularly in, in, the, in the context of the UK, um, if you're from an ethnic minority background, you are more likely for, to also be from a lower socioeconomic background. So mm-hmm. that's, again, we're looking at those structural inequalities um, it's, it's no coincidence that um, ethnic minorities are more likely to be poor. And as a result, that then has implications upon education and, and access that they have to this sort of said resources needed to do well in, in academia. Um, I'm from a Black Caribbean background and the, the stats um, that are clear to see, uh, you look, especially if you compare, for example, uh, Caribbean people in the Caribbean um, to uh, black british or even like mixed race um caribbean people in the uk you see their stark differences in in educational outcomes Mm -hmm. and again i think that is a really uh, i think the comparison is really nice because when you really dig deep into it particularly the history of particularly black caribbean people within the uk you see that for example within the rinrush generation um a little bit before that and maybe a little bit after as well you've seen that um, I think the schools are called uh, subnormal schools. So a lot of black British people are put into subnormal schools um, to, to basically say that 
they were they they had some learning difficulty and they needed to go into a school separate from the mainstream schools. But actually, a lot of these people didn't have any learning difficulties. It was just a, 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 it was structurally it, it was racist policies that meant that they didn't get education that they need. Mm-hmm. And actually, you're seeing the consequences many generations um, along um, in in educational outcomes, in access to universities, in access to even the best jobs now. Um, yeah. And I think it's only now like some of the world are starting to turn, but we're still asking ourselves the same questions about like about poverty, about home life, about having a secure home, about um, even experiencing racism, um, the, the effects that, that can have on a young person and, and the trauma that they have to kind of carry around. Yeah. Um, schools still haven't really like tackled that. And then, as I said, it's, it's progressive. So um, I can't remember what the stats were, but it was basically talking about like um, over the course of like a child's lifetime, how much sort of learning they miss out on and by the time they come up to GCSE and the stark difference between the most privileged and the least privileged. And actually, I think it was something, I, did, I don't want to quote a time, but difference was stark in terms of like learning time and, and access to, to good teaching. Yeah. So then you having these two students who are sitting the same exam, being prepared in completely different ways, or one has a complete lack of preparation, the other one has, from, from very early, been sort of, I want to say bred, because that, that's a bit dramatic, but has has been nurtured in order to take these exams from very early on. So that it's it's clear to see why someone who has resources, has the money, has support at home, has has everything they kind of need to succeed will do much better and then go on to access these institutions. And then I think um, one of the last points I want to kind of pick up on is um, particularly um, people who have migrated to the UK, mm-hmm. talking first, second generation, they may have one had bad experiences within academia, so then kind of um, didn't engage. And I'm speaking specifically about the Black Caribbean communities. But then on the flip side, they may not have any experience of education system. Um, so then there are huge disparities there in terms of even being able to help their child navigate the education system yep. to university. If you haven't been to those universities, if you haven't experienced them, or you don't know how to sort of um, uh, navigate them, as I said, then it is very difficult to, to help your, your child. Uh, I can speak from personal experience. Right? When I was navigating the, the kind of applying to university and getting in, I didn't have any help from my parents because not because they didn't want to, because they didn't really understand the system and, and couldn't navigate themselves. Mm. Um, I really like the word navigate, don't I? <laughs> um, A good word. And, I, uh, and, and, and yeah, I, I think... Uh, there's a few things that I can kind of think of top of head. Uh, uh, I don't know if you have any opinions and you want to dig any deeper on anything. Well, actually, I, I, I the, statistic, the statistic that you mentioned, actually, I pulled it up because I've actually been using it uh, and, and using it as, as an example of why Xenos needs to do what it does. Um, mm. In the UK, a child from a disadvantaged background is 18 months behind wow. when they come to take their GCSEs. And this is um, Education Policy Institute in 2019. 18 months, that's 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 ridiculous when you think about the fact that the GCSE uh, curriculum lasts, you know, 24 months. The fact yeah, that you've yeah. been that far behind, what, what have you done? Um, I wanted to kind of, and I, I really appreciate the fact that not only have you touched upon the systemic challenges, but also um, very uh, eloquently described the intersectionalities. It's not just about, you know, race. It's about race plus socioeconomic backgrounds 
plus mm-hmm. ethnic backgrounds, plus the mm-hmm. fact that you're at, you know, what, what, le- what uh, kind of migration kind of point you've come in, are you first generation, second generation? And these, these all kind of, unfortunately, are, are just like, continue to exacerbate the inequalities the system push the, pushes them on upon. Um, I wanted to bring the question now towards the institutions. Now, uh, even in the last few years, we've seen a, a major change in how places like Oxford and Cambridge and, and the top institutions are dealing with DNI. Now, we we can argue whether they're doing it right or wrong, but maybe the, the kind of the question uh, is that why are they making the mistakes or what are the challenges that institutions face in ensuring DNI in its true sense versus the kind of the the kind of the more how do I put it superfluous the more facade like changes that you you often see in in many other places uh yeah <laughs> this this is good um really really good question I really like that uh I think it's simple <clears throat> um I think uh, organizations need to stop doing the things that have, that, that have been done since like, the dawn of time. Yeah. I think the problem is, uh, uh, as much as like best practice is, is amazing, best practice can can also stifle innovation. Um, mm. I think that organizations continue said, "Oh, like this this is the best that exists, and this is what we're going to use." Um, and I know that in my experience as well, like just continue, continuously churn out the same programs in the same way every year because they, they've worked um, or, or they've got the job done or they've got them over the line so they can tick mm-hmm. off their box has meant that people haven't thought creatively enough about actually how can we make this better? How can we iterate this so it's 1% better every single year so that we're, we're really, really um, meeting the needs of the young people in particular that, that need our help or the communities that need our help. And I think one thing I really like about uh, Kings is that and I speak specifically about Kings because that's kind of where my most of my experience is, um, is that they've, they've really innovated and they've really thought about the nuances within a lot of the problems. When you're looking at like even Black Caribbean specifically, or you're looking at um, GRT community, so the Gypsy Roma, a traveler community, or you're looking at um, people who have like insecure immigration statuses and, and how I guess universities can support them in that journey. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's they've they've really thought innovatively and, and they've they've brought in different people with different expertise, which I think is super important because I think you find that universities will not only do the same things, but a lot, oftentimes like the same people are working on kind of the, the, the same problems. Um, and then again, you don't have the, the innovation that you need to tackle these challenges in a creative way. Um, I found that even in my experiences coming in and uh, with, with like I guess not understanding how things work and coming in with my opinions has been like, whoa, never thought about that. Of course yeah. you won't because you haven't got anyone to challenge you um, and tell you that, oh, why why did you do this? Or, or, or even, I even question you. Um, and I think you need that, uh, I don't know how to phrase it, is it creative abrasion? Where you, you kind of like, you have different ideas and you work together to, to come up mm. with, um, with like a new... A new idea um so i think that's my answer to that question um same process same people churn out the same results and i yeah. think covid was a was a, a good shock um well there, there was there was a positive element to covid and that i think it was the first time in in my generation anyway that 
people are forced to completely rethink everything that they did um, yeah. from everything. Like they, there wasn't anything. There was, there was kind no of no stone left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that was beautiful to kind of see people freak out initially and then just kind of go into, okay, this is a situation. I'm going to have to find a way. Yeah. And I think that's how you should operate all the time. Yeah. Right? Here is a problem. We have to solve it. So how do we think creatively about that? How do we start with the end in mind and work our way backwards? Um, and I can see institutions slowly shifting back into the, oh, this isn't possible within this framework, or this isn't possible now. Um, and I think yeah. these, these issues are far too important to to think like that. Absolutely. And we, we need to to leverage that momentum we had. And I, I, I absolutely see it. Um, you know, we're, we're, is it, it's the it's the kind of debate between the normal and the new normal. We are shifting back to this more comfortable time where we knew how things worked, versus you know you know like another kind of separate uh, kind of uh, challenge was with um, you know young people with accessibility difficulties and they were never mm. catered for. People young people who had to be in hospitals for long long periods of time during their kind of schooling life, and they were not catered for. They had to skip grades because of not being able to attend school. Suddenly they were being supported and the questions or the kind of remarks that schools made that it's impossible to cater to them was just kind of like thrown out the window but now we're going back to the time where you know we might go back to that previous you know paradigm i want you to actually share uh i have a question for you but i want to load it up a little bit Um, (laughs) i think it it really fits with what you've just said to me and i it's it's a kind of an excerpt from a, a, a book i recently read called double x economy Melinda Scott, and she talks about um, her anecdote is that she she's there's some research done in the I think in the 50s about um, the lack of education or the dropout rate with young girls in rural Africa, and mm-hmm. she says that the, the results from the kind of research were that the the researchers went in and said that at around the age of 13 14 these girls are losing are are leaving school because. They are materialistic and they engage in sex work and they become uh, taken out because they get pregnant. They're they're left out of the system. And Professor Linda Scott went in con- like a couple of years later, um, went to the schools uh, or went to that kind of a specific village in Ghana and, and she spent time there. And based on her research found that not the challenge wasn't this, as you can probably have guessed. The challenge was the fact that these young girls did not have sanitary products and they were facing period poverty. And mm. around the time when they were first getting their menstrual cycles, they did not have the, the kind of the, the tools or the, the kind of the, the, the things which would support them. And so they felt embarrassed and they felt ashamed and they were left at home. And it's such a big perspective shift. Uh, the first research was carried out by some elder white males. Uh, mm. This one was carried out by a, a young female. And you can just mm. see the fact that the representation mattered so much in the report of a result of a research paper how, how crazy is that this is academic rigor implemented um mm. and you've just uh just kind of left behind a whole group of people just because of the wrong representation when it came to mm. the field work and i want to bring that to to kind of your work and your your associations with so many different professional bodies and also different mm. advisory boards and i already know the answer but i want you to kind of like unpack this for me a little bit so why is it important why is it critical for young underrepresented and marginalized groups 
to have representation in boards, in advisory boards, in 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 these kind of professional associations? Um, great question. I think it, it links. As you kind of alluded to, anyway, it links so much with the anecdote, um, and I, and I think that anecdote is the reason why I sit on all these boards. Um, for so long, I, I I cared about equity. I cared about making a world more equitable in, in all the ways that I could, mm-hmm. um, and to as big a scale as possible. And for me, the next kind of progressive step, uh, I speak about my experience first before I answer the question more widely. I think for me, the next progressive step was always to think about how I can make the world a more equitable place um, I guess for the most people in in the most sustainable way um, and I thought okay mm. boards are, are a good way to do that because you you make decisions for a lot of people for a lot of money too um, in a in in the most um, yeah I think the only way I can use it in the most sustainable way for a life that I'm living and all the different things that I did um, but the first role I ever picked up was, was to be a governor, um, because, uh, I, I saw the stats about Caribbean boys in particular that were being excluded, at an insane rate. Um, and I said to myself, I, I need to be a part of the solution. I, I need to be a part of that immediate solution. Um, luckily the school that I'm at as well, um, they, they really care about that. They, they really understand the importance of, of trying to tackle, a lot of the, I guess, one, the in, inherent biases against Caribbean boys, um, two, some of the the challenges before you even get to expulsion. How, how do you kind of cater to particularly Caribbean boys um, so that they don't ever end up in a situation where they're facing expulsion? Because um, mm-hmm. that, that is a, a very long road. and There's, there's no reason to get there. Uh, I, I don't think any child should be expelled from a school because... Uh, who does that help? Um, you, uh, I think the the policies claim that it's about um, it's about protecting the school community, but I think you can do that way before expulsion. That's the first thing. It, it, it was the I guess my own internal drive was to create more equity and to to be a voice for people like me um, mm. because historically you don't really find young Caribbean people on, on governing bodies. Um, I'm not sure what the stats are, but I'm sure. Sure, with all my heart that they're, they're very low. Um, not only because I'm young, but also as a Caribbean man, uh, very low stats. Um, so I think tying it into the overall question about the importance of having, I guess, um, people from diverse backgrounds essentially on boards is, is critical. Um, mm-hmm. because for two reasons one, everyone has blind spots, and I think, um, in order to to, to rectify or, or to cover everyone's blind spot on the board. You need to have diversity. Also, when you're talking about specific communities, I think it's so important to have people from those communities in those conversations. Um, one, because if you're completely honest, they'll care, they'll care a lot more. Um, I think by virtue of being from a community, that's a community's work. Like, yeah. if you're in a community, you're, you, you care more about the community. You feel more attached to the community. When, when there's problems in the community, your heart bleeds a lot more. Um, I'm not saying people c- can't have empathy, but I think it's, I, I, for me anyway, I, I believe that you can only care up to a certain point if you're not in a community. And then after that, like you have to be in a community to really understand the nuanced challenges. Mm-hmm. So when you're coming up with solutions, particularly at a board level, if you don't have that deep understanding of the nuanced problems, 
um, outside of the kind of research that has been done um, and really bringing that experience that you have, the solutions you come up, come up with can only be so good. Um, or the other option is then to go and hire external consultants to come in who have expertise <laughs> in those communities. And yeah. I just don't think that that is um, like economically mm. efficient. Uh, so I I think, um, yeah, it's, it, it's critical. Um, for the nuanced solutions that are necessary to bring about equitable change that we want to see in the world. Um, you, you have to have diversity on boards across all, um, uh, 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 across everything, um, not just race, not just gender, disability, but across all the intersectionalities that we can think of. Yeah. Um, I hope that answers the question. It does. It, it does very much so. Remind me. No, it, it yeah. does about, about kind of like, it's, it's about those, understanding those nuanced challenges i want to take us probably to the last question um at and it wants it talks a little bit about the work that you're doing at the ladder projects it's you say that you're looking to help holistically develop students and prepare them for life after school and i think that's a very uh important mission and i would love to kind of understand a little bit more what what it is that is missing let's say with the preparation for for students after school and Mm -hmm. and how are you tackling it but also as it might be the last answer, what kind of advice do you have for young people listening today um, on the way that you've gone about, you know, your life and, and taken things from school and then transitioned over to academia and professional life? Yeah, um, good question again. Great questions. Uh, but I'll, I'll try to be as succinct as I can. I think the first first thing about holistic, uh, the reason that, that was so important to me personally was because um, I think a, a lot of students well, typically, anyway, school kind of gears you up to pass exams. Mm-hmm. That, that's a function of school, and, and it gives you sort of routine. So when you go into the working world, you 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 kind of become used to that routine. Um, I think pretty much gears you up to to work in a capitalist system. We won't we won't argue about the pros and cons of capitalism. <laughs> um, but the problem is is that school doesn't teach you the the soft skills that you need in order to really thrive in the world of work, or, or just even after school um, mm-hmm. in in life. Um, you, you miss out on a lot of the skills, uh, public speaking. Um, you miss out uh, how to actually learn. Uh, I think schools don't teach you how to learn. They just teach you the content and expect you to kind of go in and and, and regurgitate on an exam paper. Um, things like communication skills or interview skills, you are never really taught that at school. Um, and so, so for me, having that understanding um, of the system and, and kind of my experience of it, but also being on the flip side and being a part of organizations who has taught me those skills and I've now seen the benefit mm-hmm. of that in my life, I thought it was so important to focus not only on the on increasing um, attainment, but also focus on, on raising those soft skills or, or some of those other skills like entrepreneurship, I think is an exceptional skill. And you, and you don't have to just come up with business ideas in order to be an entrepreneur. I think yeah. you're just a problem solver. That's it. That's it. You're solving problems that you see in the world. And I, I think that's such an important skill to, to nurture from a young age and continue to build upon for these young people so that so educational um uh increasing educational attainment um teaching those soft skills or those essential skills um in order to thrive in life as well as what we're looking at as well is is helping support the family or a familial support so anyone who kind of looks after mm. young people 
because that that is the last key that I think not enough people focus on. And Kings are a great example of people who have been focusing on the support system at home because young yeah. people spend most of the time at their home. Yeah. So it's like, how, how do we empower their support system to empower them? And I think that's that's kind of the thing that we're we're, we're looking at to, to really, really double down on because I think that is key in order to helping young people and holistically developing them in that way. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, like, um, the advice I give everyone is is ask for help. Um, I always always say that Jesus um, needed disciples to spread the gospel. So if Jesus needed help, then you should go out there and always seek help because people are, there's so many organizations, there's so many people that are invested, particularly young people now um, from all backgrounds. And I think um, although it, it's, it's super difficult, um, and actually, for me, I, I use LinkedIn primarily, but I think start with people in your school, start with your peers, um, go to events and workshops and places that cater to young people and just meet as many people as you can because that is, I think, the most important thing. Incredible. Ask for help. It is hard because you're immediately putting yourself um, in a kind of a submissive position. I don't think so, but it seems like it is. And But I, it is the most empowering and most useful and actually... Uh, similarly for me it's it's the the time when I started asking questions and asking for help was when I started uh growing so powerful powerful words James it's been such a pleasure having you thank you so much for joining us no thank you really enjoyed it take care man bye